Welcome, y'all. You know, this is the final relationship with less room. We've been doing this all month, every Monday in August, ever since our book, Love People Use Things, came out. And today I'm doing something a little bit different. You might hear I'm not in the pristine sounds of our studio today. By the way, if you missed any of the past rooms, they're all recorded over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash theminimalists, although I do like the ephemeral nature of this as well, so maybe you just missed those and they're in the ether now and that's okay as well. But today I'm in a park, sitting at a bench, standing barefoot on some grass, although I realize I've got my book here in front of me because I'm going to do a little reading. And if anyone walks by and notices me, I might look a little bit psychotic reading my own book in the park somewhere in Los Angeles. Let's start with, um, well, since all month we've been talking about our different relationships, our relationship with stuff, and I do want to talk about that today. To answer your questions as well, feel free to raise your hand at any point. I can bring you onto the stage. We can have a discussion about your relationship with stuff or with the truth, with yourself, values, money, creativity, distractions, technology, all of these different relationships that we have. But today I wanna talk about our relationship with people. When we set out to write Love People Use Things, you know, Ryan finishes every chapter with some insights about, well, the do's and the don'ts and the questions to ask about each chapter. So the do's and the don'ts of stuff for example, and also five questions to ask yourself as you sort of deplane from the chapter and move on to the next one. But today we're going to talk about people because we set out to write this relationship book and realize, oh wow, we have a lot of other relationships we need to heal in our lives before we can even focus on our relationship with people. Our relationship with people can't be healed until we start to do some of the internal work and also some of the external work with our stuff. This is from page 250. You can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. If I could travel back in time and give one piece of advice to my young self, I would hand him a sheet of paper with that sentence written on it. We understand the indispensable role of other human beings when we are children, Our mothers feed us, our fathers care for us, our siblings teach us, our friends interact with us, our families love us. But with each year that passes, our desires and pursuits build barricades between us and the people in our lives. Let's face it, we started social distancing way before the pandemic of 2020. By puberty, we begin to covet cars and clothes and contraband, inching us away from our companions and relatives. In our 20s, we enlist in careers that create yet more distance, working hard to avoid the work of living well. And as we grow older, we accumulate accoutrements and artifacts, isolating ourselves with more square footage. We fill our homes with stuff, but we feel empty amid the clutter. To fill the self-constructed holes in our Swiss cheese hearts, we lust for exciting new relationships 
that may not share our values, surrounding ourselves with people who bring out the worst in us. Before we know it, we're all grown up, but we haven't matured much. Puzzled, we look around by age 30 or 40 or 50 or older and wonder why we've encircled ourselves with possessions and people that pontillate our vacuous lives. If we want to escape this quagmire, we must honestly assess the relationships we've established, including the toxic ones. Hence, the opening line of this chapter. Too often, we try to change people attempting to mold them into someone else, someone they aren't, someone who fits our ideal version of a friend, lover, or family member, instead of seeking out new, empowering, supportive relationships that enable us to grow and thrive and be the best version of ourselves. Naturally, this tension leads to quarrels that leave little room for compassion and affection, let alone prosperity. In time, toxicity permeates the entire relationship and the tiny spats and passive-aggressive behavior mount until one day, after one too many unnecessary escalations, we've had enough of the toxic relationship and then we say or do something we can't take back. It's no coincidence that many romantic relationships end with the intensity of war. Angry words turn into shouting, which turns into punched walls and objects hurled across the room. The, <clears throat> the acute reader will notice that each of this book's relationship chapters began with the word I. That is, until this chapter, which began emphatically with you. This decision was deliberate. I wanted the book's format to mimic our own lives. You see... I'd planned on writing a relationship book, but I realized that the things that screw up our interpersonal relationships are usually our internal relationships. Before we can focus on cultivating meaningful relationships with others, we must first recognize our own issues. Now, that's not an excuse to treat people poorly until you've mastered the six internal relationships in your life. On the contrary, minimalism allows us to eliminate the excess stuff so we can sort through the excess baggage in our heads and hearts. As we improve our relationships with truth, with ourself, with our values and money and creativity, we begin to form the best version of ourselves, which creates the groundwork for improving our relationship with others. If we don't do this, if we don't work to understand ourselves, we're inadvertently punishing the people around us by not living up to our potential. That's the end of that section. The book goes on to talk about some different personality types and understanding the personalities of others, not changing our personality. Although it's possible, your personality is not fixed. You know, it's fascinating. The, just the word personality derives from the Greek word that basically means mask. So we all wear these masks. That's our personality. It's the image we project onto the world. I'm not sure if you can hear that here, but there are a bunch of kids in the background playing soccer right now. And there's a, a special kind of living in the moment that's happening all around us. We talked about this a bit over the last few weeks. 
about living in the rear view versus living on the horizon. Either one of those things sort of drags us out of the moment. Anyway, if you have any questions, you have anything you want to talk about, happy to bring you up to the stage. We can chat. The book goes on in this chapter. This is my favorite chapter in the book, especially as we get toward the end of the chapter. But the book talks about the three types of relationships in our lives, the primary, the secondary, and the peripheral relationships. One of the things that we do accidentally is we spend a lot of time with the people in the periphery of our lives, that sort of tertiary layer of relationships. Nothing wrong with spending time with those people, but we have only so much time in a day. And because of that, we well, we forsake the people closest to us. This happened to me throughout my 20s. Most of my time, and I'm an extreme introvert, but most of my time was spent, well, so focused on networking buddies, co-workers, people, relationships that were birthed out of proximity and and convenience. And therefore, um, I didn't have time for the people I cared about the most. There's a section in here about finding empowering relationships. I'm going to read a bit from that until I see someone raise their hand and then we can bring someone else on the stage and have a chat. Apologize if there's some wind here. There's been a few gusts that have picked up a bit in the park. The section is from page 259. It's called Finding Empowering Relationships. I saw my wife... <laughs> oh, God, this is good. Uh, I've never read this out loud. Uh, well, I, uh, in front of anyone, at least. I obviously read it out loud a lot when I was writing the book. I saw my wife naked for the first time about two minutes into our first date. Because it was my birthday and Rebecca knew I was a minimalist, she thought a couple's massage would be an appropriate experiential gift. The other options were horseback riding and kayaking, both of which I turned down because it's disingenuous to pretend I like things I don't actually like. When the two of us walked into the massage parlor, we were greeted by two therapists, two therapists, a large man and a small woman, both in cult white scrubs, standing next to twin massage tables in the middle of an otherwise empty room. A Zen garden playlist and central air conditioning filled the space with a cool serenity. Go ahead and get undressed to your comfort level, the woman said. We'll be back in two minutes. As soon as they exited, I looked at Bex with a wide-eyed smile that said, Well, you're the one who set this up, and then slid off my shoes. She shot back an embarrassed glance and an an accompanying shrug that communicated, I didn't realize we were going to get undressed in the same room. I I raised my eyebrows to say, but you knew it was a couple's massage, right? She shrugged again and removed her top, and then I undressed to my comfort level, naked, trying not to gawk as Beck stripped down to her comfort level, panties. She looked so stunning that if, we would, that if she would have caught the contorted expression on my face, she might have mistaken it for a reaction to something offensive. This is both a poor example and a good example of how to meet new people. While it's generally a bad idea to get naked the first time you hang out with someone, it is important to be honest about your preferences from the start. 
I could have impersonated a man who likes riding horses or floating down rivers, but that would have established a synthetic sense of who I am, leading to a false expectation for Beck's and ultimately a counterfeit connection. Instead, I was upfront about my preferences, and I asked the same of her, to simply be candid about who she was and what she wanted. That way, if our preferences clashed, she wouldn't have to experience the slow decline of an artificial alliance. These days, in our ever-connected world, there isn't a best way to meet new people. Although I've known Ryan since middle school, and I've known my friend Podcast Sean since our corporate days, almost all of my primary and secondary relationships were formed within the last decade. And even those relationships vary widely in terms of how we met. Months before our birthday date, Rebecca and I first encountered each other at a grocery store in Missoula, Montana, where we were both living at the time. I happened upon my friend and business partner Colin Wright thanks to Twitter. I made contact with Joshua and Sarah Weaver, the husband and wife duo with whom Ryan and I now own a coffee house in Florida, after they read our book, Everything That Remains. I came across the philosopher T.K. Coleman, shout out to T.K., he joined us on one of these one of these uh, clubhouses. He's our most popular podcast guest. He's been on the podcast, uh, I think, nine times at this point. Hope to see him there again very soon. I came across the philosopher T.K. Coleman after hearing him on an obscure podcast. And I've started dozens of other worthwhile relationships on dating apps and at meetup groups and conferences and as friends of friends on Facebook or Instagram. The modern world has presented us with more ways than ever to meet new people. The commonality between all of my newer relationships has little to do with how we met and has everything to do with why we met and why we grew close. We share similar values. No, we're not carbon copies of one another. In fact, most of my friends have different religious, political, and lifestyle beliefs, as well as diverse backgrounds, ethnicities, genders, sexual orientations, and socioeconomic statuses. But we've grown close because we have a strong foundation upon which we've been able to build a thriving relationship. This is true even though many of these people live in other states or even on other continents, and we may not see each other regularly. I found that the key to establishing, to establishing and fostering new and powering relationships is threefold. First, the most enriching relationships coalesce around shared values, not beliefs or ideologies or interests. If you have, similar, if you have similarities outside your values, that can be nice, but our differences can also make the relationship stronger because those differences encourage us to challenge each other in good faith, which helps us solidify our own viewpoints or change them altogether. Second, quality is always greater than quantity. It is possible to have a close connection with someone you see only once or twice a year, as long as your time together is meaningful. Conversely, it is possible to be stuck in a middling relationship with someone you encounter every day of your life. One could even argue that these lackluster relationships are more likely because we tend to take people for granted when they're eternally nearby. That's not always the case. 
You can be intentional with any relationship, but it's harder to appreciate someone who's never absent. This is why Bex and I spend more than half our time apart. The distance brings us close together. Bex and I talk a lot about that on our, we have a podcast together. It's really her podcast and I just butt in every episode. It's called How to Love. You can check it out wherever you check out podcasts, but it's really a podcast about unconventional relationships and how, well, we don't want to be normal. I've tried normal in the past. She's tried normal in the past and quite often normal makes us miserable. Ryan and I just did a video on this recently on our YouTube channel about how there's no such thing as normal. Normal is just the regression to the mean. But um, normal is miserable. Normal is 300,000 items in your house. Normal is 60, 70, 80 hours a, a week of work. Normal is stressed out. Normal is broken in debt. These things are all normal. And so maybe, maybe I strive to be abnormal in, in that sense. Hey, Susan, let's bring you up to the stage. We can have a conversation. Anyone else have some questions? Hi there. I had a question. Hi. Sure. So when you were in your 20s, did before you made the shift after your mother died, did you feel it in your body and soul that the life you were living just needed to change, but you just didn't know exactly what it was? Yes. I, I think what I struggled with, Susan, was comfort. I had a really comfortable life. We're seeing this now. Um... We were locked in our homes, quarantined for a long time, especially in Los Angeles. It was almost like we had nerfed our world in a way. We're all locked at home in our bouncy houses, bouncy castles, right? And, um, man, I, I don't know. I just didn't find that particularly meaningful. I found it pretty comfortable. And, in fact, that pause, when the very beginning of the pandemic, that first month, I felt like, oh, this was, maybe this is the pause we all needed in a way. And that can be nice, just like... When you go on vacation, it's nice, right? But a perpetual sort of break from everything, man, I, I barely ever take a, quote, vacation now because I don't feel like I have something to take a vacation from. Um, I, and what I mean by that is I, I don't feel like I, there's anything from which I need to escape. Sure, there are, there's a, a weekly sort of Sabbath where I, you know, uh, the rhythm you know, a rhythm of life is different from an escape from life. Music is really meaningful to me, but what makes music are the sort of the pauses between the notes. Otherwise, if you just play a one note in perpetuity, that's not really music, that's a tone. But the, the sort of space in between the notes is what makes the music. And I think the same thing could be said for everyday life. I just didn't have that space in my everyday life before I had comfort and so although it wasn't comfort is a bit of a misnomer right because I had job security which is also a misnomer right which because your know, company can get bought out they can make a change they can go out of business they can have a hostile takeover a bunch of things can happen in a company and so we think about all these things like job security and and so I, quite often I think we feel as though we're, we're looking for comfort, but the more comfort we get, the less we feel good about our, well, about our everyday life, really, right? 
And, and so, um, yeah, I, I was afraid to give up my comfort. And that's why I didn't really ask the questions I wanted to ask. And yeah, when my mom died, my marriage ended, I finally started asking some of those questions. And had I been brave enough to get a little uncomfortable a little bit sooner, I, um, I certainly would have walked away. It, it didn't take those two events for me to walk away from the corporate world. It took those two events for me to, to ask those questions. Although, um, man, I certainly wish I would, have, I would have asked them sooner. Susan, thanks for your question. I appreciate it. If anyone else wants to hop up on the stage, we can chat. I'm going to read. This might be... I have two of my favorite sections in the book are at the very end of the people chapter. One is called Love is More. Let me read that real quick. This is from page 292. We have a language problem. I love my wife, but I also love burritos. I love Ryan, but I also love the new Matt Carney album. It's a great album, by the way. I love my daughter, but I also love the various colors of flowers in my neighborhood. One love involves bottomless devotion birthed from deep affection. The other, a preference or fondness for something enjoyable. And then there's the distinction between loving someone and being in love with them. The same root word, two utterly different meanings. The Inuit dialect spoken in Canada's Nunavut region has at least 53 words to describe snow. Imagine if we had even half as many for love. Instead, in our culture, we stretch love to apply to people and pickup trucks, friends and fried chicken, lovers and Louis Vuitton bags. But when you extend anything beyond its natural limits, it loses its strength. This is especially true with love. What do we mean when we end a phone call with Love ya. Is it just a nice way to say goodbye? Or is it simply the lazy way to say, I love you? And when we remove the I, do we alter the meaning even further? Abdicating ourselves of the responsibilities of love by removing ourselves from the sentence? We all need love, but love isn't all we need. We need to be seen, we need to be heard, we need connection. We need sincerity and grace and kindness. But these characteristics are suppressed without love. Can you even imagine sincerity without love? How about grace? Kindness? Take it a step further. Can you imagine getting everything you ever wanted? Fulfilling all your dreams without love? Not a chance. Like building a two-dimensional house or drinking from an empty cup, a life without love is flat and empty. If love opens the door to the best parts of life, why then do we not seek to be loved more often? We would rather be sexy or cool or liked. Hmm. Why? Because it's easier. We can, we can manipulate our surface to increase our status, but when you look at someone who's trying too hard to be trendy or glamorous, what do you find? A person who lacks integrity, 
a person so uncomfortable with themselves that they hide from love by draping themselves with shiny adornments. That's why love is difficult. It can't be shaped by trinkets or transactions. Only fidelity and support and understanding. Sex appeal and likability quickly fade in the face of uncertainty. Love, however, makes room for risk and rejection and even pain. There's also plenty of space for joy and pleasure and tranquility. The only thing, in fact, that won't fit within the confines of love is self-centeredness. Love is too big for the self alone. If you consult your nearest dictionary, you'll find that love has several meanings, an intense feeling of deep affection, a great interest and pleasure in something, a person or thing that, lo- that one loves. But my favorite definition is one I never thought much about. The fourth entry in the new Oxford American Dictionary defines love as a tennis term. Love, a score of zero. In the context of a tennis match, that means one thing. But as a broader metaphor, it means everything. Real love, when removed from the desires and commodification of the modern world, doesn't keep score. There's no balance sheet, no barometer, no measuring stick for love. Hmm. It goes on to talk more about love and what love is, what love isn't. You know what's fascinating is for the longest time I just didn't understand love. I think I didn't really understand love until I basically I finished writing this book. And it's not because I finished the book, but I started stumbling into some new insights. To love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. And that's why I start the chapter out with that sentence that I began this clubhouse with. You can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. It's unloving to try to change someone, and yet we have a particular kind of advice epidemic on our hands. You'll know this if you listen to our most recent podcast episode last week. It was called the advice epidemic. (sighs) It's unloving to try to convince someone. We have the saying that coercion is not consent. I totally agree with that. But how is it different with persuasion or convincing? Aren't those just lighter versions of coercion? And it's certainly not loving to coerce someone, right? And so what's fascinating about love is it's simultaneously one of the easiest things to do and one of the most difficult things to do. And that's because it doesn't require a doing. It requires only a seeing. I think it was Anthony DeMello who said um, that silence is not the absence of sound. It is the absence of self. That sounds like a beautiful definition for love as well. To truly see someone, to truly love them, doesn't require a doing. You don't have to do anything to love them. Now, love can inspire caring. It can inspire thoughtfulness and kindness. It can inspire contribution and 
and giving and adding value to someone else's life. But this is not the same thing as love. These things can be inspired by love. But to love them is simply to see them for who they are without trying to change them. Yes, I get that you might want, might want a... You might have different beliefs from them. You might have different opinions. You might think you know what's best for them. But to love them is to see them, accept them where they are right now. That's real love. I don't see any raised hands, so we might wrap it up here with one more section. Oh, a few hands popping up. So let me find a section for the very end of this. And Yaman, good to see you, brother. Hey, Joshua, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I'm trying to be the TK Coleman of Clubhouse right here. <laughs> Those are big shoes to fill. I was just talking to him yesterday. Hey, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, actually, I popped in because I have a quick remark and a question maybe you can uh, just go on about. I don't have to necessarily go back and forth on I just would like to hear you talk about it, address it in terms of relationships. Sure. But the first remark is uh, this morning I was getting a haircut and I was scrolling through my phone reading an article on Vogue for um, – Stefano Tsitsipa, I don't know if you follow tennis at all. He's the he's a world number three player. Okay. And, um, he actually mentioned Matt Diavella's documentary about minimalism, and he's big on decluttering. So I thought, I'm pretty sure he's talking about your guys' latest documentary on Netflix because the article only came out probably two months ago. So I thought oh, that wow. was pretty cool. I love it when, you know, I personally am a tennis fan, and I love it when my uh, – when my worlds collide, you know, some of my favorite people. It's cool. It's cool to see you guys cross the paths that way. So just that's wanted beautiful. to let you know, it's in vogue. There is a line about you guys. Oh, and, that's wonderful. Um, and the second thing is um, only through, I just got to chapter three, which is the, where you address the self part, the relationship Ooh, yes. with self. Um, so I'm not, you know, I have a feeling that you definitely mention it later on in the book, but I wanted you to just maybe talk a little bit about your relationship with fame. And how has that, you know, affected, you know, given that you have a platform, you're a writer, you made documentaries, you know, you've done all these things. And how has that, you know, the way you live your life versus the fame that you and the recognition that probably exponentially grows the more you do? How, how have you handled that? How has that been for you? And uh, last but not least, thank you very much for hosting these. Hope to see you guys more on Clubhouse. Yeah, you know, I don't know if we're going to do many more clubhouses, but we'll, it'll be some other platforms. You know, it's just, I see people migrating away from, from this platform. We'll see what, what happens. Um, yeah, I think it has to do with the world opening up some more. So not a whole yeah. lot of people are just like staying indoors talking here. The, the you know, I, I don't know if, you know, I think we'll see more of these. In fact, I've got this idea for, you remember the, in fact, you, you were on one of the episodes of uh, Minimalism Today. I did these five little sort of test episodes over on Patreon of Minimalism Today. And, yep. Um, yep. The episode you, you were on was, it's, it's up on YouTube right now, folks want to check it out, but um, I, I could see that morphing into a, a more live video version. I don't know what the appropriate platform is for that. It could be Instagram Live, it could be something else. So we're still, we're finished building out our new studio, and as soon as that's complete, I could, I could, see, I could see something over there. So 
uh, that's forthcoming. Uh, thanks for the question about Sweet. about Look fame. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I don't know. It's it's a it's a strange thing. It's it's a I'm in a weird place because I get recognized pretty much wherever I go, but most people wherever I go have no idea who I am. <laughs> so it's like this this weird little window. We you know, sort of became accidentally famous in in 2017. I and I have. Until very recently, I had an allergic reaction to the word because I never sought it out in that way. I did seek out adding value to the masses, and I think that the sort of popularity, the the, the recognizability is a byproduct of that, as opposed to it being the thing that was sought out. And now... A lot of people are seeking out fame as though it is virtuous, and um, that alone is like, I don't know, it's like having a really beautiful facade on a house, but nothing on the inside. It kind of reminds me of the housing boom back in the Oddies. Remember all these McMansions were being built in the suburbs and the exurbs of all these cities? I I know because I built one. Uh, My first house I built was this oversized house, too big for me, you know, big basement, two living rooms, you know, three bedrooms, uh, two and a half car garage, whatever the hell that means. Um, and, and, um, I saw a lot of people building these things, especially the really big ones, six bedrooms, (laughs) seven baths. And it's like, but they were empty. I had a friend who was, yeah, yeah. I had a friend who was, who was making, pretty decent money and basically bought a house because he went to the bank and they're like hey how much money can you how much money can you afford to pay us every month based on your salary and and they figured that out and he just bought the largest possible house and was all of a sudden house poor and when the market crashed he was in tremendous he was upside down tremendously but also it was empty in the sense that did you ever see the movie boiler room I have not added to the list. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a fascinating movie about the sort of vacuousness of, um, you know, corporatism and uh, the lies of, of corporatism and striving. And it, anyway, there's a guy in there who they, they all meet at this guy's house. And he has this massive house on the South Fork in uh, New York. And <laughs> it's um, it's almost a parody. Like, there's nothing in it. It's just empty. There's a couch and a TV, which is like he's living kind of like a minimalist, right? But why the hell do you buy this, this giant, this giant house for that? Then, um, you know, I can afford a, a bigger place than what I live in right now. It's I don't know. Or my family lives in a thousand square foot, nine hundred square feet, or whatever. And, and and it's not that it'd be evil or wrong for me to live in four thousand square feet. It's just not. It doesn't feel. A, appropriate for us where we are right now and I think I think the same thing about about fame in many ways like it can be really helpful in in the sense that it can help us get this message out there it's never really bothersome my wife gets a little freaked out by it because people stop to take pictures and stuff uh, most days and um, but people are always like it's not it's not Justin Bieber you know, level. Like I, I was in a sauna once with him, and um, 
he is you know one of the most famous people in the world. I can't imagine like he couldn't be at the park that I'm at right now. I'm at a park right now, and there are a few people I'm sure who notice me, but most people don't say anything, right? And and but with Justin Bieber would just get swarmed, and so he can't even live a life. So I think when it's invasive, then it's totally toxic. When it's sought as the end goal, it's also toxic. It's probably even more toxic then, because. Mm. It invades every part of your life. At least Justin Bieber can go be alone in his house. But if you're, if he was out, if he was at home seeking fame, it's still following you around there. It's never been the end goal. It's there's a great line. I don't know if you ever read Freedom by Jonathan Franzen, but it might be my favorite novel. Um, there's a line in there, and this isn't verbatim, but one of the the characters is talking about has his relationship with fame. He said it's the uh, he, he he doesn't like fame, but it's a thing he wouldn't want to live without. And, well, I don't feel exactly that way. I think I understand that sentiment in a way. Sometimes it can be a little inconvenient. Other times it can be convenient. But it's, as long as it's not the point, then... Although, I'll tell you, if I'm being completely frank, there was a moment in 2017. You know, the documentary came out on Netflix into 2016. There was a moment in 2017 where... I was like, oh, this feels really good. How do, how do we do more of this? And, and then it became, oh, I, pretty quickly I realized, like, oh, this is just a different type of consumerism. So how do, I, how, how do I consume um, uh, uh, respect or appreciation or something else? That's perfect. So, so that realization really is what I was after. Do you, was that something that was born out of your conscience or is that something that, you know, for example, I know some people keep, a, a small circle around them that keep them in check, quote unquote. Do you have that kind of mechanism in your life that enables you to kind of should the ego kind of overstep its boundaries? Like, do you have that kind of system in your life, or is it mostly self reliant? Are you mostly self reliant with that with that realization? I think it's probably it's probably about fifty fifty, uh, or maybe sixty forty, a little more self reliant, but. Yeah, Bex and Ryan are the two people closest to me in my life, and neither one of them could care anything about it. Like, Ryan has no desire whatsoever to get um, adulation or applause, or he's shocked by it every single time. And, and so, <laughs> like, he has no desire for it whatsoever. And, and both, both of them are rather egoless, um, uh, not rather, relatively. Um, and, um, I think that's helpful for me as a, as sort of, as a sort of model because, um, yeah, if, uh, if, if it goes unchecked, I could see how, how, um, well, it, it just becomes another chase then, right? And then how is that different from buying the Lexus? Yeah, it's never fulfilling that way. Yep. Amen. Okay. Perfect place to stop it. Thank you again for having me up here and thank you for hosting these, brother. See you soon. Appreciate you, brother. Thanks so much. All right, let's let's finish up, y'all. Let's. Uh, this is from the epilogue in the book. I remember, I, I wrote this. Oh man, <laughs> I'll tell you the original opening line to this. So, um, well, here, here's the opening line. Now we are each a collage of contradictions. I think. Um, I think at one point I said um, the op- and the publisher was like, no, you you. Uh, you shouldn't do this, and I'm like, all right, we'll 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 remove it, but I can at least talk about it this way. But um, 
the original opening line was like, uh, I'm one half Buddha, one half Pornhub. That, that's sort of, um, I think, the, uh, the, the contradiction within each of us. But I have a few other contradictions that are maybe a little less blue here. Anyway, um, we are each a collage of contradictions. On one hand, I am a hypocrite. I'm a minimalist, but I own a house, which I just sold, by the way. It was true at the time when I wrote this. I own a house, a couch, and more than one pair of shoes. I sometimes avoid the truth, seeking acknowledgement or praise or convenience instead. I break my own rules for simple living, drooling over glossy magazine ads for Range Rovers and giant billboards for Rolexes. I neglect to meditate, exercise, and eat healthfully from time to time. My actions don't always match my values. I believe in climate change. But I drive a gas-powered vehicle and power my home with, electri- with electricity from a coal-fired power station. I think exploiting workers is wrong, but I'm typing the sentence on a computer that was assembled by underpaid workers in China, and I'm willing to bet I own more than one article of clothing that was made in a sweatshop. I spend money on things I don't need. Jackets are a particular weakness of mine. I occasionally watch television alone, and I use my smartphone too much, both of which stifle my creativity. I love my family, but I'm not, particular, but I'm not a particularly adept parent, and I don't make an effort to see my brother as much as I'd like. On the other hand, I'm a better person than I was a decade ago. My life is simpler now, more focused and honest and peaceful. My lust for stuff doesn't run the show. I'm more conscious of my health and well-being, more joyous, less stressed, more appreciative, calmer. And my health, while far from perfect, has improved markedly since the Great Depression of 2019. That's something I wrote about earlier in the book. And it's improved even dramatically since this book was finished. Um, Yeah, which is the thing I'm most grateful for. If you have your health, you have everything. I know, Yaman, you just talked about being on the the self-chapter, but in a way, it's kind of a... A partially a health chapter, really, really pointing out the the obvious. Was, actually, it's only obvious when you've lost your health. Everything else is window dressing. If you have your health, God, you have everything. You you really do. And without it, it's the only thing you want. Everything else becomes irrelevant really quickly. I understand my values as well as the obstacles that get in the way of living a meaningful life. I'm unapologetically and enthusiastically debt-free, and I contribute more to charity than I ever did when I was earning those corporate paychecks. I'm more creative and less distracted, even as the world points its informational fire hose at my head. More considerate and patient than I used to be, I'm a kind friend, a competent business partner, and a loving husband. It's true. I'm imperfect and no amount of simplifying will erase all my flaws. I still make mistakes, and minimalism has not proven to be a panacea for all of life's woes. It has, however, improved my life immeasurably. And although I still have problems, they're better problems. Problems that make life richer, more nuanced and vivid. As I solve these problems, new ones always emerge. Our struggles end only after our heart has ceased its rhythm. That's fascinating. I might disagree with that now. Even though I wrote this sentence just a couple of years ago. <sighs> oh, not even that. A year and a half ago, maybe. 
I um wow I believe all of our hmm forget what I believe what is true all of our struggles are internal how could it be anything else right it's not that other people make me upset or external circumstances I struggle with it's always internal it always has to do with the narrative that mm, that we tell ourselves. Return the text. I have scars, but those scars make up the best parts of me. As I turn 40 this year, I aspire to be my 50-year-old self. Me, but better. I say all of this because, in many ways, I am you. You might be scarred, but your scars are what make you, you. Like me, you have flaws and problems and you've made mistakes. But, you're not, but now you're at a crossroads. You are standing at the precipice of your next dreadful decision. The next lie. The next impulse purchase. The next harmful habit. The next breach of your values. The next dollar wasted. The next technological distraction. The next minute spent consuming instead of creating. The next victim of your judgment. This barrage of negativity is a pattern you've grown used to, a persistent white noise that has been lingering in the background so long that you didn't even realize it was there. It's a, it is important to not live in the past but to learn from it so we don't carry the same mistakes forward. Your past self is merely an ancestor who birthed you, but they are not who you are today. Their faults and indiscretions are no longer yours unless you choose to cling to them. You have the tools to break the pattern. You can create a new beginning, not a radical overnight transformation, but a slight pivot in a new direction that will change the trajectory of everything to come. And to get there, you might have to let go of some stuff that's in the way. Thank you so much for your time today, y'all. Hope to see you on the road this year. Starting next week, Ryan and I are going out on tour. It's called the Love People Use Things Tour. We're headed to 20 different cities, U.S. and Canada. You can find all the details at theminimalists.com. Love you. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it